My name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to the Migration Podcast. A central concern in debates around refugee integration is that of labor market integration. But how do displaced people create livelihoods for themselves and become self-reliant? For this episode, we invited Evan Easton Calabria to discuss the meaning of refugee self-reliance, how assistance practices have changed over time, and the important yet often overlooked role of refugee-led organizations in providing training and labor market orientation. Evan, tell me a little bit about your work and how do you situate yourself in the field of refugee studies and international development? My work focuses on refugee self-reliance. So on one hand, looking at refugees' economic integration into you know, local communities, I'm also looking kind of nationally, internationally at what economic integration means, self-reliance, what does it mean? Um, it's also extended into more of what I call self-governance. So this idea of refugees as actors with a lot of agency that often goes unrecognized. So that has extended to work with refugee-led organizations. So organizations created by refugees themselves to support other refugees all around the world, actually. And asking, what does self-reliance mean? And what, what has it meant historically? So um, my forthcoming book looks at a century of self-reliance assistance practices. So how the League of Nations, how the United Nations Refugee Agency has tried to support refugee self-reliance, but really trying to understand what self-reliance looks like in different contexts at different periods of time. And I'd say in terms of situating myself, so refugee studies is often seen as a sort of subset of international development, but there's actually kind of a gap often that happens in terms of linking them as two academic disciplines. So some of my work has really explicitly looked at kind of development practices at different periods of time in different contexts and how refugees assistance and refugee self-reliance in particular has maybe emulated that or diverged or fit within it as a larger kind of part of a larger development project, we can say. And um, so I see them as very, very linked, but often maybe not recognized as much um, as kind of connected, but separate. Can you explain what do self-reliance or self-reliance policies mean in a context of refugee settlement and integration? If you can elaborate a bit more on that. And perhaps how do you see self-reliance policies in terms of the positive outcomes, but also the limitations? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say, again, very open to interpretation, but how I often define refugee self-reliance at the kind of its base would be, you know, how refugees are living independently from kind of institutional assistance. So that might be world food program, food packages, for example. And it's actually really changed over time. So there's, you know, there's a formal definition of refugee self-reliance from the UN Refugee Agency, which has also changed definition slightly. But I think there's kind of limitations within the definition as well. So it's really shifted to looking at sort of specifically meaning refugees living independently from aid and economically being economically independent. Um, and there's a lot more, I think, that could be encompassed in that definition. So if we think of self-reliance as a form of independence, you know, what about political self-reliance or activism, you know, does that come into play? And it largely doesn't. Or um, maybe collective forms of self-reliance that are we looking at self-reliance as um, kind of happening at an individual level or at a community level, for example. So there's a lot 
a lot to look at there and it's kind of shifted over time. So in some of my research, you know, in, in Pakistan, for example, with Afghan refugees in the 1980s, it really shifted the focus of refugee self-reliance. This really as a goal of, you know, how do we help these long-term protracted refugees live independently from aid? It, the definition itself became, how do we help them not need food, <laughs> food packages? You know, that was, that was the aim. So again, it's, I might say, a very, you know, wide term that has a lot of different meanings at different times. And that's something I find really interesting because in my work, really looking over a century of practices, kind of seeing some continuity, but also these changes that it's a term that is pretty malleable of being able to maybe serve different interests at different times or have different meanings. And in terms of policies, I'd say there's, you know, a lot of consistency. So be it, you know, if we're looking at um, Congolese refugees in Uganda, where most of my work has been, um, you know, in Kampala, so in cities where refugees generally aren't provided with international assistance or, or government assistance, um, then it, these programs that are trying to foster refugee self-reliance often do livelihoods training. So that would be kind of the policy in urban areas. Refugees aren't given any assistance except for this basic assistance to help them you know, be, quote, self-reliant. And then if we want to kind of shift context to some of my other work with Syrian refugees in, in Berlin, in Germany, it's kind of similar. <laughs> the aim is to, you know, help refugees integrate into the labor market. So help them, you know, first learn the German language, then, you know, get the specific kind of trainings and qualifications needed to enter the labor market. And so in different contexts, different countries, different you know, levels of wealth and assistance provided, there's a pretty singular focus. And you know, I'd say in terms of integration as a, um, as a goal, on one hand, that does make sense. This idea that people can and should and can work and help themselves and be independent. And you know, most of the refugees I know really want that for themselves, that they want this ability to work and they, they know they can do it. They have the skills or they want to learn the skills to lead independent lives. But then on the other hand, if we think about integration as a kind of policy goal, but practice, well, what does it mean to integrate? And just having a job, I'd say, isn't integration. So this focus on integration for refugees often is labor market integration. And I, I'd say I have a lot of problems with that because that's really narrow. So it's one piece of a much bigger puzzle, right? That, you know, what about social contact? What about access to other forms of community, one's own kind of national community, maybe, as well as kind of the host community? There's a lot more to think about when we think about both self-reliance and integration. Absolutely. And I would add perhaps that uh, when, when reflecting, when thinking of concepts of integration or settlement, indeed, there is this risk of missing a bigger picture uh, related to, for example, how the individuals themselves perceive belonging and how they experience belonging, but also how they feel about their aspirations, how they feel about the the host community, right? And also how they are connected to other refugee communities in a place and elsewhere. So I very much follow your, your perspectives and I recognize also in the those limitations in the sense of, uh, of the notion of integration. So you mentioned something about, um, about your work, a historical approach, Evan, that you've taken in order to understand how self-reliance uh, policies and practice have taken place over the years, but also across different contexts. So can you perhaps say that at this stage, there is a growing tendency in terms of the state 
being less supportive to refugees or are there geographic variations in that sense? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'd say, you know, what we're seeing is yet another wave of restrictionism, right? That that was, that's probably been growing since the 1980s um, and definitely with COVID, you know, so if we're looking kind of more broadly, if we're looking more at self-reliance kind of as, as one of those main aims of refugee assistance, um, I'd say that, hmm, how would I say this actually? Um, I'd say that there's been a growing focus, again, probably since the 1980s, so kind of taking a broader historical brush of growing for the last 30 years um, of, you know, the focus being on individual refugees and therefore the onus of self-reliance being on themselves. So, you know, whereas refugee settlements in the 1960s, 1970s, even into the 1980s in Africa, for example, were were kind of focused on as I call them self-reliant settlements. Like the aim was for them to collectively to be growing enough cash crops for export to be able to feed themselves and basically, you know, kind of earn money for national governments ultimately. Um, but there was a real focus on self-reliance at a um, kind of a community level in the form of, of refugee, entire refugee settlements. And so we've really seen a shift away from that. And I definitely don't think that's a best practice, but kind of as one example of a larger kind of scale of self-reliance. So um, kind of beginning in the 1980s, there was just much more emphasis placed on individual market-based training. So livelihood support that we see now. And it's quite striking actually that many of the refugees I've worked with in Uganda for the last 10 years, you know, are, are doing the exact same trainings that, you know, I've read many archival documents of refugees in the 60s, the 70s, and then, you know, all the more so in the 80s and beyond doing. So it's, you know, learning sewing, it's carpentry, it's, um, you know, kind of trying to get some business skills in order to have one's own often informal business. So this focus um, right now is very individual and I think some of what gets obscured, obscured by that is you know, individual characteristics, right? So if we're looking at people as individuals, then how could we not be taking these characteristics into account? And that you know, looks like having multiple children, um, you know, maybe having a disability that prevents one from working outside the home or at all um, different ages, older refugees that come to a new country, you know, maybe not have the same chances to learn skills or to get a job as younger people. So there's a lot of differences that um, I think aren't being taken into account when there's this base expectation that refugees you know, can become self-reliant. And I guess I link that to your question about kind of the state, because it does feel from my reading of you know, this moment and you know, building on past moments that we're using a rhetoric of agency to hide a lot of the vulnerabilities and in an effort to reduce and limit state support. In the beginning of our conversation, you were telling us that you have written a book. So perhaps if you can share with us about, about your book and, and how important it is for large humanitarian organizations and international government bodies to invest more in a work developed by local organizations run by the refugees themselves. Yeah, I'd say that refugee-led organizations are really important and not just for, you know, furthering refugees' economic participation, but social participation and this, you know, elusive notion of integration as well. So a book that was published through Cambridge University Press with, um, written by Kate, Dr. Kate Pincock, Dr. Alexander Betts and myself, focused on refugee-led organizations in um, Uganda and Kenya and found that they 
I'd say are having an outsized and under underseen impact on, on refugees. So they are often small organizations. They're often nationally registered. So they're real organizations, you know, community-based organizations or NGOs. And um, they have, you know, their own very clear structure of, you know, a founder, a leader, secretary, treasurer, and so on. And they are often working in um, you know very clear areas, so maybe providing livelihoods trainings, for example. So that would be one clear pathway to furthering economic participation. So um, you know having three to six sewing machines in a room and having different sets of trainers who are also you know volunteers and you know generally refugees themselves teach other refugees how to embroider, how to sew, and um, having you know emergency shelters, for example. So the Bondeco refugee. Livelihood Center is one organization that I've worked with in a community capacity and then have done, I'd say, sort of vague research with. It wasn't part of our book, but um, have really kind of studied them as they've grown and changed over the past decade. And they started out you know, teaching English lessons and then became kind of a center with a building unto itself that was a you know, permanent shelter for, um, for women and orphans, for, for single men and so really meeting refugees' needs and in a variety of ways. There's definitely growing recognition of refugee-led organizations and their importance. And so I think, again, you know, the COVID pandemic has, has really furthered that in terms of you know, remote, <laughs> kind of the lack of access that a lot of organizations <laughs> had as they went remote. And um, you know, I've had talked with several people from major international organizations who said, this pandemic showed the shallow roots of our programming, you know, and I quote, and really recognizing like who has access to these people in need? Well, it's these community organizations and who are the first responders, who are the responders that stay? It's, you know, it's the refugees themselves. So there's, I'd say a positive piece of the pandemic um, and there's more more funding mechanisms that are being created for refugee-led organizations and I think there's still a tension but which we see with all localization efforts right of really transferring responsibility and resources to the you know quote local level um, so I think there's a lot more that needs to be done but I do feel heartened by um, by more of the the kind of positive changes that are happening around refugee-led organizations. That's very important that you mentioned that, and also in a context of the pandemic, right, where several of those things that were already happening on the ground and they were just simply became, they just simply became more salient in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, and closely related to that, I, I'm just thinking about the digitalization processes in these contexts, for example, in a context of refugee livelihoods. You have published a very relevant report on this topic, Evan, and where you highlighted the benefits, but also the challenges of digital work for displaced people. Can you share with us in which ways are refugees engaging in digital work? Are there differences depending on a geographical location? Yeah, so this work of mine started through a collaboration with UNDP, and it was a report um, entitled Digital Livelihoods for People on the Move. And it was really interesting. And so this, this strand of my work has continued out of, you know, out of this deep interest of recognizing that you know, the internet has grown as the internet economy has grown, that there are more possibilities for refugees to engage in remote digital work. 
And I'd say there's a lot of pitfalls in that. So when we say digital work for refugees, we actually are talking about a lot of different types of work. So maybe at the you know, more basic end, it would be micro work. So these very short tasks that can be completed in you know, under a minute, for example, um, through a smartphone, and then going to you know, maybe long-term categorization of data sets that require some digital skills but are fairly basic as well. And then going up to very you know, high level language interpreting and translation to you know, online consulting, often through platforms, um, work platforms like Upwork, for example. And so there's a whole range that um, really require a, a different levels of, of skills in general and then digital literacy as well. And I'd say, some of what I've seen, which again, is kind of born out of my, my, you know, quote, in real life work with refugees and examining livelihoods is kind of this, uh, maybe not surprise, but definitely concern around the replication of the divides and of the inequalities. So we see from the very beginning who has access to a smartphone. So a smartphone at the very least is, is required for this type of work. And more men than, than women have access to a smartphone. Who has access to basic digital literacy skills or trainings? It depends. You know, people that can get out of the house to go to those trainings held by organizations, for example. So maybe mothers with young children are disadvantaged in terms of getting that training, right? So we have a lot of examples where everything that we understand understand around privilege and lack of privilege in the real world, it, it often does extend. And something I'd say I'm kind of grappling with is trying to wrap my head more around what those risks are. And, you know, obviously there's the risk of online exploitation in various forms and as a form of work, which we also have of labor exploitation in the real world. Yeah. Um, but something that I do find really interesting is that, um, a lot of the work of these humanitarian development programs are working on training refugees and they're to gain skills, which I'd say are valuable skills for navigating the world and, and your kind of the digital world, if nothing else. But what they're being offered isn't a job at the end of the day, right? So these people are being offered um, maybe access to an online work platform, but they are the consultants. Maybe they're linking up with an employer who can offer some short-term work, but that's very, very different than a permanent job. I also question how how high the aim is. So, you know, one of my informants for this project said, you know, we're not training people to become computer scientists, right? We're training them for this very low level, low skill, low paid work. And I think they themselves were struggling with that reality as a very core part of um, the program they were running. And so I do find it to be an interesting opportunity for people. Again, this idea that someone sitting in the Dadaab refugee camp could connect with a private sector actor in Pittsburgh in the US and, you know, and, and have work. And that, that's pretty amazing. But there's also, there's other ramifications. And one question I'd say that I've had kind of examining this landscape is, does this become an, an easier conversation for international actors to have with host countries? Is it a way to avoid pushing for the right to work, for example? You know, is it a way to kind of justify leaving refugees in camps for years on end because they can access work. They can lead, quote, decent lives right where they are. So I think there's a there's an element of the restriction of rights or the policy of containment that comes with these conversations. And this is really, it's, it's similar to livelihoods trainings in real life, right? If we can keep people doing well enough where they are, then maybe they won't come to Europe, for example. So these are bigger conversations, but that's definitely something that um, that I've come across through this digital realm, we can say. 
We are now drawing to a close. Evan, thank you for your interview and for your time and for participating in a second season of the Migration Podcast. You're so welcome. Thanks very much. Evan Easton Calabria is a Senior Research Officer at the University of Oxford Refugee Studies Centre.